today on EdgeFX. One of the very first decisions the Roland Park Company made resulted in poisoning the water and compromising essentially the land where African Americans had lived and worked for generations. I speak with historian Paige Glotzer about her new book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890-1960, which was recently published by Columbia University Press in April 2020. We discuss the legacies of suburban developers, like the Roland Park Company of Baltimore, Maryland, and how suburban segregation continues to contribute to today's inequalities. I'm Laura Perry, and this is the EdgeFX Podcast. So thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk about your new book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated. But first, before we jump into that, I wanted to know how you ended up a historian. What drew you to historical research? Oh, thank you for having me here today. I actually have known for a very long time that I wanted to be a historian, uh, and it actually started with a love of cities. Uh, I grew up in New York City, and I would often just like to walk around and wonder why things looked the way they did. So I began asking questions about the built environment in the present, and that really just expanded from there. Uh, I wanted to start knowing about how things were connected to each other, um, and I just kept asking questions. Eventually, that led me to majoring in, in history in college, as well as political science, and minoring in architecture and urban design. So the city never really left my sight as, as what I wanted to focus on. Uh, and then it was a no brainer for me that I, I wanted to go to graduate school for history and I wanted to make this my career. And you can really see all of those interests coming together in your book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, which asks why suburban communities grew to be whiter and wealthier than urban communities. But the book begins earlier than someone might expect, not in the 1950s at the height of the suburbs, but in the 1890s. Could you talk about why? So I position the 1950s as close to the end of my book, because while a lot of people think of the post-war boom as the, the suburbs moment, I actually think of it as the culmination of a lot of processes that went on for decades and decades. When I started the project, I started in the 1890s because that's when I saw a certain type of suburban developer starting to gain power. In the case of the book, it was a suburban developer in Baltimore called the Roland Park Company. They were formed in 1891. I had never heard of them before I started my research, but it quickly became clear to me that they talked to a bunch of like-minded developers who were also new at the time. And a few things were new about them. They were planning large uh, communities, so larger than their competitors. And this meant that there were new types of spaces in cities like Baltimore that were coming into formation. There was another thing that, that connected them, though, that really surprised me, which is that they were getting their money from different sources than their older local competitors. In the case of the Roland Park Company, I actually follow the money and look at investment uh, that financed Roland Park Company dating back into early in the 19th century. This investment did a few different things for the book. Uh, it allowed me to connect the rise of some of the more familiar segregated suburbs in the United States with all different processes around the world. 
because that money went from place to place to place as investors put their money into a place, made a profit, and then put their money somewhere else. So segregated suburbs are actually connected to a rise of a global Jim Crow, where segregation was seen as one type of profitable investment. That allowed for these kind of big changes in how people were creating communities. And it also allowed for a certain subset of developers to start setting some practices that others wanted to copy. So by the time we get to the 1950s, you can actually really see a lot of the echoes of much earlier suburban developments informing this post-war boom. You mentioned how developers would copy the Roland Park Company, and your book takes that company as emblematic of how suburban development works. So could you talk about this process? I want to say the Roland Park Company was in some ways very typical, but in some ways very atypical of what suburban developers were doing in the United States. But this is where you really get into the story of power. The Roland Park Company was actually one of just a handful of suburban development companies that were creating planned large suburbs that were formally segregated, focusing on single family houses constructed by architects. Uh, they were controlling all of the, the pipes and the trees where everything went. And this took a lot of time, a lot of staff, and actually a, a long period in which they didn't necessarily get a lot of profits. So not many companies were able to do that, especially at the turn of the 20th century. So why is it then, I ask in the book, that they became so influential? And it was the small handful of developers that actually helped to create the networks uh, of realtors and planners and policymakers where everybody essentially said, what are the best practices for designing and planning cities, for designing and planning even cheaper suburbs or suburbs that may be for different types of clientele? And because of the Roland Park Company and some of their peers really setting some of these standards and advertising them very heavily as the best things to do, you actually start to see emulation in all different types of spaces. So this includes in municipal policy, where you start to see certain types of segregated spaces make its way into how cities were designed and planned. Zoning is one of the major examples that's influenced by a very small but very influential set of suburban developers. I take this forward and look at how within real estate networks, realtors tended to actually know the names of the presidents of these companies. They were discussed like they were celebrities. And so as the real estate industry itself was kind of new in the 1910s and the 1920s, the practices of suburban development companies were embedded in what were the best practices of the real estate industry. And ultimately then, these were also the companies whose officers had the cachet and leadership within these networks to be considered good consultants for federal policymakers. So really, I think of this as a case study uh, in terms of looking at a couple of suburban developers, but I think that network aspect is very important to understand how what's really in some ways a, a small set of developers came to have such an outsized platform to shape the beliefs and practices of so many others in the real estate industry and ultimately in the federal government. And you mentioned another case study in the book. As you write, 
Roland Park would develop cheek and jowl alongside a thriving African-American community, Cross Keys. So how is Cross Keys important to understanding the story of the segregated suburbs? Yes, Cross Keys is actually extremely important, as are places like Cross Keys. Cross Keys predates Roland Park by about 80 years. Uh, In other words, by the time the Roland Park Company was trying to develop its planned segregated suburb, there was already a community there. The suburb wasn't taking place on empty land, which is an important narrative point that I try to disrupt. I don't want people to think of suburbs as popping up on empty land. Cross Keys was already there. Now, even though it predates Roland Park, Roland Park actually helped to really shape the fate of Cross Keys in some ways. And Cross Keys also helps to shape Roland Park and thus in some ways, segregated suburbs in the United States. So I talk about a few different ways that Cross Keys was actually very important to understanding segregated suburbs. The Roland Park Company saw Cross Keys and saw the Black residents of Cross Keys as a nuisance, and I can talk more about nuisances a little later, but also necessary for potentially providing labor in Roland Park. So in as the rise of Jim Crow was really happening in the 1890s and at the turn of the 20th century, white suburbanites were essentially being conditioned by developers to see black labor as integral to how segregated suburbs needed to function. And the Roland Park Company helped to set the types of relationships and the expectations of the first generation of essentially white suburbanites into how to think of the presence of African-Americans in suburban spaces. Meanwhile, people in Cross Keys did things like Roland Park's laundry, or they cooked or cleaned in Roland Park houses, or they maintained the roads in Roland Park. And I found evidence talking about how uh, the Roland Park Company encouraged residents to pay people in Cross Keys less than potentially other white laborers they may have hired. And so there's this pattern setting there that's part of a larger story of Jim Crow America. But another part of this story that's very important is the way that the Roland Park Company also used anti-Black violence to sell the suburbs. So Cross Keys became essentially a place that the Roland Park Company sought to either keep visually out of sight by planting things like hedges along the border between Roland Park and Cross Keys, or it saw Cross Keys as a place that maybe disease was emanating from. So there are incidents throughout the book where the company helps to condone the actions of residents who go, white residents of Roland Park, who would go into Cross Keys to try and exert control over something such as were there dogs from Cross Keys who might be exposing kids to rabies in Roland Park? Were there mosquitoes in Cross Keys that were potentially spreading diseases in Roland Park? They would send these residents in there as a means of controlling essentially black mobility, of defining and bounding black spaces. And all of this became part of the sales strategy for the Roland Park Company, who would then advertise that they could control the safety and health of their spaces, quote unquote, their spaces. This idea that a planned suburb, a segregated planned suburb was safe and healthy and was also white helped to also really set the tone for why segregation was something that so many white suburbanites were also willing to defend and have a stake in, 
not just monetarily, but also in terms of thinking of their own position as safe and healthy people living apart from what they might have viewed as a dirty or unsafe city. So there is a lot of coding that went into health uh, and that went into advertising that was all predicated on how the Roland Park Company treated cross keys. Is this a story that still shapes Baltimore today? If you were walking through these neighborhoods, would you be able to tell which one you were in? Are, are they still as segregated as, as they were in the era that you're studying? Absolutely. Now, a lot has changed about how segregation looks in Baltimore. But there is one thing that you don't see a lot of when you walk up the old street where Cross Keys was on. And I use was in the past tense. And it's because Cross Keys, like so many predominantly Black neighborhoods in America, was subject to essentially destruction in the mid-20th century for interstate highways and for various projects that were aimed to attract or keep uh, white people in certain places. So Cross Keys mainly doesn't exist anymore. There are a couple of houses where if you walk along the street at the, it's called Falls Road, and it's at the bottom of the hill. Roland Park was at the top of the hill, which was another part of its strategy of saying, we're safe, we're healthy, we have good air. Cross Keys was kind of down the hillside. And if you walk on that hillside, you see one or two houses left that look old, that don't look like they fit into any of the existing neighborhoods around them. And then you see one project after another that ultimately in the 1950s and 60s displaced the African-American residents of Cross Keys. The Interstate Highway, which is Interstate 83, uh, you also see a giant school complex. It's two schools called Poly um, and Western. Both of these were schools that were specialized schools aimed at white people to keep them within Baltimore City. And they are on suburban looking campuses, very large lots, very large parking lots. They, they look like they could potentially be out in, a, in an actual suburb, a far distance from Baltimore City. These types of projects were part of the legacy of segregated suburbs too, in that they resulted ultimately in an increasing vulnerability of black neighborhoods to be subject to displacement for something called urban renewal. And that was that happened in Cross Keys. It also happened throughout Baltimore. So Baltimore is extremely segregated and there are so many ways that you can read that segregation into the landscape. But I think it's really important to see what's not there. Think of the erasures and oftentimes what is erased, what you don't see in the landscape anymore are historically black neighborhoods in Baltimore. One thing that the current pandemic has underscored is how public health depends on access to resources because the impact of the pandemic is not being experienced equally across race and class. So how are the segregated suburbs part of this larger story of American inequality? There are many ways in which uh, the pandemic has illuminated uh, existing inequalities in the United States and also has exacerbated these inequalities. So housing is very much tied to a whole slew of economic and social relationships that put people at different levels of risk for COVID-19. One is that depending on where one's home is, that also is gonna determine where potentially one goes to school. There are huge disparities in the quality of education and access to good schooling in the United States, and that's very much a legacy of segregated housing. In fact, school districts often map on to other types of racial segregation 
and they're usually tied to where people live. So schools is a huge thing. So educational disparities also are very much tied into job disparities, employment disparities. And I think one feature of a lot of um, the news coverage of COVID-19 is looking at how employment has really put people at different levels of risk for infection. So we now have classifications for quote unquote essential or non-essential workers. Uh, and many of the frontline workers who have to show up to grocery stores who are cleaning buildings um, are generally doing so with low pay, um, oftentimes a lack of health care. Uh, and that often tracks to these various measures of segregation, right? So very one of the, dis the reasons why today a disproportionate number of victims of COVID-19 are people of color is also because of the jobs that they're working in and the benefits or lack of benefits they get with those jobs. Why that has to do with housing is in some ways related to one of the biggest uh, legacies of planned segregated suburbs. Uh, and this has to do with property values. So property values, how much is one's house worth is very much tied to, to this day, to race. So if you take a house and you put it into a neighborhood that's majority black or majority white, chances are it will be assessed as having two completely different property values. Now, why is this important and how does it relate to things like jobs and schools? So property values can be used to generate revenues for a, a city to run or a suburb to run. So when property values are low because of segregation, that means that cities or municipalities turn to various other measures to try and generate revenue. And this is where we also see these racial disparities relating to public health. So for instance, infrastructure maintenance and basic services are likely to be curtailed. So you're dealing with things such as ambulances that might have different response times in black neighborhoods versus white neighborhoods. That might make a difference between life or death in an emergency. Policing becomes not a service for residents, but potentially extractive. So you have places that are generally majority, say majority black, um, subject to a different type of policing than in, say, a place like Roland Park. That policing becomes extractive meaning that it's not necessarily done all the time to protect, but to actually generate revenue through arrest and fines and fees. We've been seeing all sorts of stories about how essentially arrests are not being done with social distancing and people and social distancing in various aspects of the epidemic are being enforced differently by police, depending on the race of those who police are encountering. So these are other ways that people become disproportionately put at risk that ties back to this longer legacy. Of course, when you bring in policing, we also have talked about one of the hotspots of the infection throughout the country, which is in prisons, incarceration. So because of various ways that segregated housing ties into other forms of segregated spaces and segregated jobs and segregated schools and revenue generation, you also have a prison population that is disproportionately African-American, Latinx, even though there's not necessarily a disparity in the rates at which people of different races and ethnicities commit crime. Once in jail, your chances of being exposed to COVID increase by a lot. I could go on. The rise of segregated suburbs also patterned the options Americans have to buy food. Supermarkets rose in the 1950s at the height of the post-war boom. 
They often targeted consumers in suburbs where they could have bigger stores, better supplies, parking. So grocery shopping and grocery store workers have become one of some of the most important people and sites for how inequality is working during the pandemic. And the whole nature of grocery shopping is tied into the history of suburban spaces. And I do want to also end this long answer with something that that I'm not seeing a ton of coverage on, but I think it's also really important. I start the book uh, mentioning Native American displacement. Um, Native American displacement was one of the ways that the investors who financed Roland Park got their money. Native American displacement has resulted in various situations where Native Americans have some of the highest rates of infection in the United States today. But the data is also really inconsistent in terms of how Native peoples are counted statistically. So this meant that there is actually even more of a crisis in terms of um, being able to get supplies and attention to the huge ways that the epidemic is infecting and decimating Native populations in the United States. And so even that, that, that very large and long structural story about Native people is also really part of how we can think about suburbs and the pandemic too. That was such a great answer. Thank you. So you mentioned that it's a global story. And that's one thing that the digital project that you created to accompany the book really gets at. So where can listeners find that digital project and how do you see it as relating to the book? The digital project is called uh, Building Suburban Power. And um, the actual website address is a a little uh, unwieldy. So the best way to find it is to Google Building Suburban Power or the website that it's a part of, which is called visualizing historic networks that really gets at the heart of what I tried to do with the digital project. And with the earlier chapters of my book, which is uh, I tried to map the investment and investors that financed one of America's first segregated suburbs. I think that that's one of the aspects of the story of segregated suburbs that most surprises readers. And as a historian, I, I love surprising readers because it means that a reader can maybe ask new or different questions about, well, why things are the way they are. So the digital project itself uh, takes what essentially is chapter one and part of chapter two of the book, where I talk about the several hundred British investors who contributed that finance into Baltimore. And I look at who they are. I have some of their demographic data, where they lived, what their occupations were, whether they uh, identified themselves as men or women. Uh, which were the only two options they had for in, in those particular records. And then I also highlight, I map all of that. So you can really see it and interact with that data and actually click around to get a sense of who these people were. And then I also follow a couple of the largest investors where I have I had records as to their investment history. And I map across the world where that money came from and passed through. And that really helps to visually tie together Um, a segregated suburb in Baltimore with, say, a sugar plantation in the Caribbean, or um, a company in the Congo, or parts of India or Egypt, or lots of activity in the Western parts of North America. So I think that one thing the project does that the book can't do because of just the different media that they're a part of is you can see this. You can actually see these connections in a way that's a little different and I think more surprising and more visceral than when you when I simply write about it. 
Um, and it's a lot more interactive too. Yeah, the granule level of detail is really fascinating in, in the digital project. I definitely spent a long afternoon just clicking through it. The suburban development process is an economic question, but it's also an environmental one. So how did the physical location on top of the hill, at the bottom of the hill, of these housing developments shape their features? In many different ways. The book is spatial. And I say that because I came to this project not as someone following investments or looking at business. That actually came later. I became interested in the history of segregated suburbs because of the ways you can see them in the landscape. And this means that this is a landscape that it takes place above ground and also below ground in terms of how the landscape is maintained um, and where it is. So in terms of the, the economic and environmental question, the physical location of Roland Park and planned suburbs like it in the 1890s, 1900s, they shared some similarities that actually became really important for what the culture of a planned suburb became. So I mentioned before um, the hill, the Roland Park Company cited its developments on top of a, a hill. Baltimore kind of has all different elevations. Because of that hill, they were able to shape a marketing strategy where they could talk about the good views while strategically, of course, uh, shaping those views to hide, say, African-Americans and cross keys below or face the views away from, say, downtown Baltimore in the city. So controlling the views gave, was something that the, the sighting uh, on that hill allowed them to do. And it became really important for the early images that emerged from the Royal Park Company that they used to sell why this was a unique and different space than perhaps residents were accustomed to who lived in Baltimore City. This also then means that health became a, a marketing strategy in part because of the physical location of the housing development. Um, and also simply because this large tract, this hill, was a, a little bit distant from the kind of steady growth of Baltimore City, they were able to get more land. So the physical location allowed for a larger tract as well, meaning that this planned suburb could seem to function and be constructed as its own space, rather than say, just a small space that was next to established, say, row house neighborhoods. And row houses were the main housing form in Baltimore City up until that point. So the physical location of the houses and, and the neighborhoods themselves shaped what the company decided to do and what it was possible for it to do in terms of creating an, an entire strategy for defining and selling the thing it called a suburb. That means that infrastructure is also extremely important. So I could talk a little bit more about um, sewer pipes and the ways that sewers are actually extremely important to the story and to suburban inequality as well. Yeah, that's a really great environmental thread throughout the book is sewer pipes. So where the sewer systems get built, where the sewer systems empty out, you know, all that below ground. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that the, the sewer story is very much a part of um, how we can track suburban inequality. I talk about sewers as part of just a larger category of infrastructure, uh, pipes, lights, even things like trees, all are aspects of development that had to be planned and maintained 
and they all sort of begin and end somewhere. I think, as as you mentioned, right, a pipe has two, at least two ends. Sewers, sewage has to go in somewhere and come out somewhere. So there were a few ways that sewage especially helped to, I think, reveal the story of the making of uh, inequality. Uh, the first is who gets to decide where those pipes go. So the Roland Park Company initially was part of Baltimore County, meaning it didn't necessarily have to deal with the city government at first. So it got a lot of leeway in deciding where its pipes went. And it made them go underneath cross keys and dump out into a nearby river, which was also where um, people in cross keys went swimming. So the one of the very first decisions the Roland Park Company made resulted in poisoning the water and compromising essentially the land where African-Americans had lived and worked for generations. So that is a story that I think continues. Environmental inequality is very much tied into environmental racism. That's something that we can take to the present day. But there's also a second part to the sewers, which is very much about public health and the environment, especially um, in a place like Baltimore, which is who gets to shape the municipal priorities when it's the city that that's determining where the pipes go. So the Roland Park Company, as a developer, had uh, more money and then essentially in some ways more access to uh, people in power to shape those municipal priorities. And so what I look at in the book is how the Roland Park Company was able to essentially change the Baltimore City sewage plan because it was building its big municipal sewage system for the first time at the beginning of the 20th century. And they were able to get the sewage commission to deviate from a plan that had been based on serving people with the biggest health needs first. Those are often poor and immigrant communities um, very close to Baltimore's harbor. The harbor was a dumping ground for a lot of things. So, and it was also at the bottom of a hill. So there had been waves and waves of epidemics in Baltimore near the harbor. And the sewage system was supposed to remedy that first by taking a lot of that waste and diverting it away from just going into the water. Instead, it went to Roland Park as one of the first places, even though, uh, as one of the sewage engineers um, I talk about says, there's absolutely no reason for the Roland Park to get those sewers from an environmental standpoint, from a health standpoint, or even just a logistical standpoint in that it, it was hard to engineer sewers up there. So that who, that who shapes municipal priorities is also something that I think reveals the ways in which suburbs started to be able to have access to the resources that then made them appealing, that also then reinforced the very divisions developers are trying to advertise between city and suburb. These types of sewage inequalities also not only continued, but the Roland Park Company helped to multiply them. Um, so one by one, they essentially took away or built over or poisoned Crosskey's water sources. They also essentially continued to advocate for themselves to get municipal resources. And I have records in which just after the Rolling Park Company might have been successful in, say, getting a permit here or securing a contract there, the city government would then turn to another, say, group advocating for the same resources for itself and say, we can't do that. We've already used up our, our money and we've used up our personnel for these other projects. 
So there were these ripple effects that went out most immediately to cross keys in the surroundings, but also to all of Baltimore City in terms of shaping who got resources and what the actual long-term impact of that would be on health and the built environment. Yeah, and those connections between what this suburban island is doing and how it's seeing itself and the rest of the neighborhoods around it, uh, your book is really great at, at tracing out. Let's talk about nuisances, which is a part of your research that I'm particularly fascinated by. And you explain the connection between federally subsidized housing markets and nuisances so well in the fifth chapter of the book on policies. Could you briefly get into the connections that you make there? Uh, yes, I'll actually work backwards a little. Um, since uh, chapter five is talks about those federal policies, it's called policies, as you mentioned. So the the ending of that nuisance story is that ultimately the major government agencies that helped to really spur the post-war boom, uh, which was a segregated post-war boom, incorporated um, an older language of nuisance into their rules for who and where would get kind of federal assistance uh, for mortgages and for development. In other words, these two agencies, um, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was mainly during the Great Depression, and the Federal Housing Administration, the FHA, helped to underwrite segregated development uh, and prioritize essentially large planned suburbs with white people as the most stable, most successful, and most deserving of federal assistance. Now, where did they get that language from? And in a way, because it made such a huge difference to the post-war landscape. For that, I actually go way back. Um, I go back before the Roland Park Company because nuisances were a category of laws that cities had long used when they didn't have a lot of other types of power to regulate anything. So nuisances were very broadly speaking, things that were considered to be toxic or dangerous. Uh, the word noxious is a word you see a lot in um, 18th and 19th century nuisance law. So the city would have a power, essentially police power and regulatory power to control things that might be noxious or dangerous. And they could say, okay, factories can only be over here. Um, they conflated this with bodies though. And this is really important. So it wasn't just that say factories might be noxious or dangerous. Asylums full of people um, deemed to have mental health issues would be considered dangerous or noxious or unhealthy. So asylums would have to go over here or bathing in um, a river can only be done in this way or that way. Now, throughout the 19th century, this was actually very closely associated not just with bodies, but very particular types of bodies, very often racialized and gendered bodies. And so there was this big conflation in how uh, nuisance law worked um, and that it often targeted and deemed dangerous, unhealthy or unwanted people who were, say, not white or um, oftentimes even women who were not behaving um, within ex uh, some gender norms. Um, and this began to be then used for housing segregation not by suburban developers, but actually um, in California to legislate where Chinese people could live. So some of the earliest cases of housing um, segregation being kind of upheld through nuisance law is anti-Chinese legislation in California. Now, there was a second strand to this because that, that piece, uh, anti-Chinese piece is really important because it speaks to potentially a larger way in which Americans in power were kind of looking at people around the world 
by the 1890s, uh, when the United States itself had a strong imperial presence um, in places like the Caribbean, you had uh, sanitary engineers um, and various planners and public health officials who also used nuisances. Again, the idea that people could be noxious and dangerous. We're using this as a tool to essentially manage and control populations um, of imperial subjects. Now, one of those people who, his name is George Waring, he was a sanitary engineer, was the person who helped to consult on the Roland Park Company's restrictive covenants. Now, restrictive covenants weren't laws, they were contracts uh, that every home buyer had to sign on to, and they set rules about how people could use their property. Um, so this became one of the main ways that segregated suburbs, well, were segregated. They formally set rules about what could be done uh, to property. And one of the things the Roland Park Company did was insert a racial restriction into their nuisance clause. So African-Americans, and they, they were the only group singled out and targeted in these restrictive covenants by the Royal Park Company. The ban on African-Americans buying or occupying property was put in the nuisance section of the covenant between a ban on keeping livestock and a ban on doing anything that would produce smoke. So that conflation between essentially uh, African-American bodies and things that were unhealthy or noxious or dangerous became, again, one of the founding principles of what a segregated suburb sort of meant. And also it then had all sorts of ramifications on property value because that conflation continued to sort of work its way into a lot of different aspects of real estate. So now we could flash forward and why was that then in the law, the bylaws and the rules of the HOLC and the FHA? It was because when they turned to certain realtors to be consultants on federal housing policy, they took up the language of restrictive covenants directly, saying that that was a good idea for property values. And they were consulting with people who were very much advocates of restrictive covenants and nuisances as essentially at that point, common sense or somehow natural ways to order space. And so you have this really long, almost unbroken chain of nuisances regulating, essentially being used to regulate racialized bodies or bodies considered dangerous up through um, over a hundred years later, developers helping to turn that into a key aspect of how the federal government would then create a scheme to um, ensure a segregated post-war America. Yeah, and you can really see in your answer how these laws and these ways of understanding nuisances are not only connected to housing segregation, but also to things like immigration law or public health regulations that are enforced unequally, that the connections between all of these things and the the networks between these different kinds of, of power and policing spaces is so resonant in the book. So this book began as your doctoral dissertation. So you've been researching this for a while. So I'm wondering how your understanding of the suburbs changed during your research. The short answer is so much. <laughs> They've changed so much. Um, but actually, that, that idea you just hit on, interconnectedness, I, I think that my understandings of suburbs changed as I learned more of the ways that suburbs were interconnected with people, places, and processes around, around the world. So again, even from following money to con that connected segregated suburbs to different 
different places that I I never would have put in uh, in dialogue with them. That's one thing that surprised me. And then also the very fact that you could have a unit, what seems like a unified space. Roland Park seems very self-contained, but that then when you learn about the sewers, when you learn about cross keys, when you learn about the different kind of municipal policies that both affected it, but then sort of came out, like emanated out of Roland Park and the Roland Park Company, I was so surprised that in fact, that space, that suburban spaces are not unified, but they are so, so intimately connected to everything and everywhere. So much so that even the terms themselves, suburb, suburban, urban, are historicized and connected to essentially the development of these types of racist ways of ordering the landscape. They're not stable. They themselves are historic terms that kind of come out of the very sort of interconnectedness that I get to talk about in the book. So I, I think that my entire understanding of suburbs as these sort of long-standing, stable things, that, that was completely upended in my research. And I think for, for the better, when I think of interconnectedness and I think of all of those different facets of what a segregated suburb can be and what it has done, I think I get a much richer understanding of American history in general. Who are some of the other historians of the suburbs or of American inequality that you found especially helpful or influential when you've been writing about this? There's one historian who whose book actually came out when I was already done with my book. And wow, do I wish I had had access to her book while I was writing, because I think she is one of the most influential and important people writing about inequality today. Um, and that is uh, Kianga Yamada Taylor whose book is called Race for Profit. Race for Profit takes up the story of housing inequality in America in the late 20th century, after a lot of the um, suburban uh, boom that I, I focus on in the book. And she talks about the different ways that segregation is not only profitable, but it's profitable when you turn it on your head. Um, she comes up with this concept called predatory inclusion, where essentially, why is it, and I think it's an extremely compelling explanation, why is it that racial inequality still exists today when it seems like a lot of the, these legal and legislative things, such as uh, legalized segregation, have fallen by the wayside? So I love that. I want to read Kiyanga Yamada Taylor's work all day. So she's definitely going to be a huge influence for me in the future. So what is next for you? Well, if um, I am able to get back to the archives soon, uh, I'm starting on a new project that I'm, I'm calling uh, Transnational Peripheries. It's part of um, a turn towards global urban history where I want to kind of understand some things about housing and real estate and the environment in a larger context um, than just say Baltimore or just the United States. So I'm gonna be looking at how Latin American peripheries of cities were sometimes turned from places of extreme poverty to places of extreme wealth through international coalitions of, of developers and realtors and architects in the mid to late 20th century. I'm at the very beginning of that project. So I don't really know how it's gonna go from here, but I'm super excited to be turning to something new. Well, that sounds so fascinating, and I hope that you are able to get back into the archive soon. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
That was Paige Glotzer, assistant professor, and John W. and Jean M. Rowe chair in the history of American politics, institutions, and political economy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her first book, How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890-1960, was published by Columbia University Press in April 2020. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by me, Laura Perry, and Addie Hopes. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to Edge Effects wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about it. That really helps connect us with new listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgefx.net. <laughs>